There's a word from the Lord this morning. And I was sharing this morning as I was doing my reading through the Bible, I came across this passage of Scripture. And it literally grabbed me in the collar of my shirt. And I called Belinda in the room and I said, listen to this. And I read it for her. And then I called my mother in the room and I said, listen to this. And I said, I have no idea what God is planning on doing with this word, but I know it's going to be something powerful. And I look forward to, as the Holy Spirit would continue to minister to me to bring this word forth, I knew that it was going to be something powerful. And so as a pastor, I'm excited to share with you what God has revealed to me uh, to be able to share with you uh, concerning his scriptures. Uh, let us pray. Oh, gracious and all-wise God, as we come this morning, oh God, we come certainly as humble as we know how, but yet with a heart full of thanks. Uh, Father, that the preaching moment has arrived, oh God, where your word is to be declared over your people. You have made it abundantly clear that when your word is spoken, it does not go out void, but it, it accomplishes what you have intended it to do. And so, Father, we call it done by faith. And so, Father, I pray that you would move me from the equation, hide me behind the cross, allow me to decrease and you increase and just uh, use me through your Holy Ghost power to declare your word to your people. And Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart are found pleasing and acceptable in thy sight, O oh, my Lord, my strength and redeemer. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. We are coming out of this morning, the 16th chapter of Ezekiel, verses 3 through 8, and it reads this way, give her a message from the sovereign Lord. You are nothing but a Canaanite, your father an Amorite, and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, no one cared about you. Your umbilical cord was not cut. You were never washed and rubbed with salt or wrapped in clothing. No one had the slightest interest in you. No one pitied you or cared for you. On the day you were born, you were unwashed and dumped in a field and left to die. But I came and I saw you there, helplessly kicking about in your own blood. And as you lay there, I said, live. Verse 8. And when I came past again, I saw that you were old enough for love. And so I wrapped my cloak around you to cover your nakedness and declare my marriage vow. I made a covenant with you, said the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I'm going to talk, teach, and preach from the subject, God's amazing love. God's amazing love. We read in the Bible in the fifth chapter of Romans in the verse 8, it says this, but God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, <laughs> God demonstrated his love toward us that in while we were yet sinners. In that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In that, when you were unlovable, 
when you had nothing that was acceptable to the Father. He demonstrated toward us his great love by sending the best representation of himself, which was his son, to die. Is that not amazing love? So Paul, in this verse, wants us to know and experience just how amazing the depth of God's love is for us. God's gracious love took the initiative to save us from our own helplessness and ungodly condition. And in these verses, it it will show and demonstrate that salvation was totally from God and his great and amazing love for us. There was nothing in us that was lovable. There was nothing in us that would motivate God to send a savior. And so this picture here in the 16th chapter, where we were like, we would, we were like this unborn, I mean this unwanted newborn infant, thrown in a field, squandering in our own blood, a piece of garbage about to die. He took us and he bathed us with his blood. He wrapped us in the fine garment of salvation. He anointed us with the oil of the Holy Ghost, all stemming from his amazing love. God's gracious love for us. He sent none other than his son, Jesus Christ, who was the one that the father sent to die for our sins. It was he, the beloved son of God, in whom he was well pleased, who was the eternal word, who was with God and who was God and who created all things. He was the one, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact of exactness of his representation and nature who upholds all things by the word of his power. He is the one in whom the angels worship and whose throne is forever, who laid the foundations of the earth and made the heavens and whose kingdom will never end. He is the one that Paul speaks of who demonstrated his great love for us on the cross Christ didn't die. I want to set the record straight. Christ didn't die to persuade the anger of the God of the Old Testament. No. Him, the Father, and the Son were in full agreement in their love, and they devised the plan of salvation together for guilty sinners. In this chapter, this 16th chapter, in using this analogy of a child being cast away, and the unfaithful adulterous wife, God comes to Ezekiel to deliver a message to his people, Israel. He said, Ezekiel, I want you to go and to declare before Jerusalem about their detestable sins. And the sole purpose of this tremendous chapter, which is stated so brutally to Jerusalem, the Israelites, about her abominable or abominations before God. Ezekiel describes in this text, in its most realistic terms, some say that it is the most revolting chapter in the Bible. The picture of Israel was so revolting in this chapter that some Jewish rabbis forbade the chapter to be read or translated in public. Not many, not many preachers even today would speak in such harsh and realistic language 
which we find in our text, but it is the sad truth. It was the only kind of brutality and frank and honest language that could get the attention of Israel. And I dare say that it takes the same kind of language for us today to get our attention. The problem was that the national attitude of the Jewish nation, God's chosen people, uh, in the midst of uh, their existence, and they had the mindset that they despised every other race on the earth, and they looked forward uh, to the day that God would destroy them all. And even though they despised them, they adopted their idolatrous lifestyle. And so when God wiped out Samaria and Sodom, uh, they was looking forward to the Lord's day that he would come probably on a white horse to kill all of the Gentiles and turn the world over to them. And so here's Ezekiel called by God. Who, and Ezekiel in the past had made many prophecies concerning the, re- the, mm, excuse me, the worthlessness and the reprobate mind of God's once chosen people. That's the background of this chapter. In other words, God's chosen people were now outside of God's will and they were suffering his judgment. It is possible for even those who are saved to get outside of God's will. And if you're not saved, then you never are, have been inside of God's will. And I just stopped by to share this morning, that's a bad place to be, outside of the will of God and experiencing God's judgment. See, the will of God for us is to repent of our sins and trust Christ Jesus. This passage gives an important sequence. See, Israel refused, did not, but refused not to conform to the things of the world. They did not allow God to transform and renew their mind according to the things of God. That's why Ezekiel says in verse 3, He says, I have a message from the law. He said, you are nothing but Canaanites. That means you're nothing but a sinner. He says that your father is an Amorite and your mother is a Hittite. The reference to an Amorite father and a Hittite mother was because their abominable idolatry and their lack of moral restraint, Israel was lost. I thought it was interesting, uh, Sister Diana, that he chose to use the father and the mother Uh, in the text because, see, our fathers and our mothers are the ones who have the most influence over our life. So he declares that because of Israel's disobedience to him, that their mother and their father were literally an idolatrous people. They were following the, the, the example of the folks who had the most influence on their life. Are you with me, church? And so here it is. Canaanites are mentioned over 150 times in the Bible. They were a wicked, idolatrous people, the descendant of Noah's grandson, Canaan, uh, the son of Ham. And so this analogy is somewhat inaccurate because strictly speaking, Abraham and the patriarchs were not Canaanites. But the Israelites so dishonored Abraham and God to say that they had spurned from him would be an affront to God. So in a spiritual sense, They were rather Canaanites than Israelites. Listen, 
They would boast about being the seed of Abraham, and yet they would so degenerate and follow the abominations of a wicked people called the Canaanites, and so they were really acting in the matters of their fathers. Oh, you know what the scriptures are talking about. You know folk who profess to to be born again and say, but yet they act like that the devil is more their father than God. You know what I'm talking about. That's what they're talking about in the text. It says this about Israel in the scriptures, Isaiah 1 and 4. Oh, what a sinful nation they are, loaded down with the burdens of guilt. They are evil people, corrupt children who have rejected the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. So Ezekiel seizes upon this metaphor, an abandoned baby girl. That's so dramatically depicted in the text, and he expands and elaborates on this analogy. In all its brutal and sadistic punishment as to an adulterous person in that time. Listen to what he says in the text in verse 4. He says, on the day you were born, no one cared about you. Your umbilical cord was not cut. You were not washed. You were never washed or rubbed with salt or wrapped with clothes. See, those were cruel times in the world history. In Israel's disobedience to God, he used the nation of Babylon to come in and to capture the whole Israelite nation. And then he would march all of the Israelites from Jerusalem to Babylon And that journey would take a little more than a month as they walked. And as they walked, there were women who were expecting and who were on the verge of giving birth. And on that journey, the cruelty of their captors, those women would have to give birth on the march. And they were unable to provide for the needs of their children. And so they had to leave them on the roadside to die. And so when Ezekiel was using this a message from God, it would be a metaphor that they could make a reality in their minds. They remembered the pain and the agony that they suffered in as witnessing the abuses of a, nothing breaks our heart more than hearing about a, new, a, born, a newborn child being thrown away. In the same way, Israel's sin from the beginning and the record recorded in history constitutes as one unbroken record of unfaithfulness to God. This picture of this unattended, abandoned new baby girl with an uncut navel, waddling in her afterbirth is described here in very indelicate language, but Ezekiel meant it that way. He wanted to expose the ugliness of their sin, and this analogy simply fit the facts. If this baby had been properly cared for, it would have been plunged into a bath of cold water washed with a mixture of salt and water used to give greater firmness to the skin. And the last process was to swaddle the baby in fabric to support the tender muscles until it acquired a sufficient strength, sufficient strength to support the Bible. It's a picture of what Jesus does for every sinner 
who has the sense and the need to appeal for him in repentance. Why wouldn't everyone want to come to Jesus for spiritual cleansing? The problem is that sinners, the unrepentant, are blind of their defilement. So they don't see the need to come to Jesus. Look at the text. Verse 5. No one had the slightest interest in you. No one pitied you or cared for you. On the day you were born, you were unwanted and dumped in a field and left to die. I know there are folks in here right now who know exactly what that feels like. From the day you were born, you were neglected, overlooked. Nobody responded to your needs. And as you looked around for help, and you couldn't find anybody, nobody had pity on you, nobody cared about you. And so we do what human nature do. We begin to look for things that make us feel better. And you end up in drug abuse and alcoholism and sex addiction, all because nobody cared for you. And so here, he's talking to the nation of Israel. It is a picture of complete helplessness. And without a savior, we are completely helpless. We desperately stand in need of a savior because without him, we are helpless, ungodly sinners at enmity with God. The helplessness in our text means that we are unable to, to work out any righteousness for ourselves. So we're going to examine, a church, some things that the Bible says about us, our helpless spiritual condition outside of Christ. We are spiritually dead when we are living on disobedience to God in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the power of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the heart of those who refuse to obey God. Outside of God's will, we are not able to submit to God's law or to please him, Romans 8, 7 and 8. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's law, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. Without God, we are not able to see the light of the gospel to be saved. 2 Corinthians 4 and 4 that the God of this world has blinded the mind of the unbeliever so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I hear you. I, I, I hear your church. You're saying, my goodness, pastor, that's awfully heavy. That's kind. That's awfully depressing. That, does, that tears down my self-esteem. It doesn't make me feel very good. However, listen. If we do not see the depths of our sin and God cannot rescue us, you won't appreciate his amazing and great love that Christ didn't come to polish off your self-esteem and to make you feel good about yourself. He came into the world to die for our sins and to reconcile us to God. Listen, 
if you don't see yourself as helpless as this baby in the text, as ungodly sinners at enmity against God, then you will never see a need for a savior. Uh, but there's always hope. I love that God never leaves us in that place of death as that baby child. It's in the text. In verse 6, watch this. He said, but I came by and I saw you there, helplessly kicking about in your own blood. And as you lay there, God said, live. So you missed your shout right there. Because God says to the sinner, woman, boy, and girl, the backslidden believer who is struggling, God says, I see you. I see you there as you struggle in your own helplessness to change your condition. God says, I see you right there in the midst of your struggle. Oh, brother, but watch what God says in the text. God said, I said, live. God receives us from the dead as this exposed child. He sees our state of horror, but he also sees our need for compassion. And so God says, live. I'm talking to somebody this morning who is in bad health despite what the doctor said. God says, live. I'm talking to somebody who's on the verge of suicide. Listen, God said, live. I'm talking to the person who's in the throes of addictions. God says, live. God is literally saying, it's not over until I say it's over. Makita Brown Clark and Israel Breed says, New Breed says it this way. I know the odds look stacked against you. I know it seems like it's no way out. I know the issues seem unchangeable and you have no reason to shout, but listen, church, but the impossible is God's chance to work a miracle. It's not over till God said it's over. It's not done until God said it's done. Just keep fighting until your victory is won. It's not over. It's not finished. It's not ending. It's only the beginning when God is in it. All things are new. Something is moving, turning around. Something is changing. Everything is different now. Here he comes, the sun piercing through the clouds. There is there. You are closer than you think you are. You are closer than you have ever been before looks to the heavens from which cometh your help and your help comes from the Lord and it is on its way because our God is faithful. It's not over until God says it's over. Listen, tell your family, family, tell your friends, tell everybody you know it's not over. The cleansing that Jesus offers cleanses a defiled conscience of the inner man. It instantly and totally heals the sinner who trusts in Christ Jesus. He is instantly and totally cleansed and reconciled completely to God. Watch the text. 
didn't know all this was in here. But in verse 8, Brother John, here's what God says to the sinner, to his sinning people. He said, when I passed by again, I saw you old enough to love. And so I wrapped my cloak around you and I covered your nakedness and I declared a marriage vow and I made a covenant with you, said the sovereign law. Watch this in the text. And he said, you became mine. So you missed your shout right there. Listen, here's what God is saying. When I looked at you the first time, I saw you wasn't ready yet. You hadn't gave up yet enough on yourself and your situation. But I didn't give up on you. I came back to check on you again. And this time, I saw you were ready for love. And so he says this in the text. He said, I took my cloak and I put it around you. That's symbolic of a marriage in the scriptures. God says, now, let's exchange marriage vows. Let's talk about your commitment to me and my commitment to you. He said, I want to make a covenant with you. I want you to know now you are no longer on your own. That you are mine. Hallelujah. Christ so loved the church, he gave himself up for it that he might sanctify it. The marriage of Christ to his bride. Come on, Stacy. The church follows the same pattern that is found in the text. If you look at verse 9, hallelujah. God said to Israel, God is saying to the sinner, then I bathed you. I washed off your blood. Listen, the blood in the text that he is washing away is all of our sins and mistakes. By the blood of Jesus, my crimson stains that turn white, whiter than snow. Ephesians 5, 26 and 27 says this. To make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word, he did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot nor wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, ah, she will be holy and without fault that by the blood of Jesus, all sinners' sins have been washed away. I have been sanctified. God's amazing and grace love, gracious love, he sent Christ to die for us. This is tremendous good news. It means that our hope in heaven is secure because it doesn't have anything to do with us. And in fact, it's despite us. 
That's why Paul said in his word in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrated his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's amazing love is not based on us getting our act together to deserve it. It's not based on our track record of performance to guarantee this continual flow of love. Rather, God is love. Love is based on the fact that God is love and he is gracious and he has extended his love and grace to the sinner apart from ourselves. But you got to do something. You have to see and recognize your condition and that you need a savior. And God said, He said, all I've been waiting on is for you to be ready to accept my love. And he said, I'll marry you. I'll exchange my vows with you. And you will become mine. So you miss your shout right there. Because some of us know what that means when God rescued us from a life of sin on the railroad, doing and living ways that you knew God was not pleased. Some of us know what it means that God has rescued us from a life of addiction. Man, I had the most awesome experience the other day. One of the most gratifying things I've done in a long time. In Terre Haute, we organized an event to service the homeless and low-income families in our city. It, it was called What's Your Need? And people can come in and receive dental treatment and physicals and haircuts. And so I, I took a, a team of barbers and hairstylers in to that event and we cut over 60 heads most of them homeless and disabled and to see the joy that these folks had with just a haircut and as we were cutting so I was cutting this one gentleman's head and he began to share with me his testimony he said I've been clean and sober for six months he said I've accepted Jesus Christ as my savior and he has forgiven me for a lifetime of mistakes I made. And I was able to rejoice with that brother right there in the middle of a haircut. And I want to rejoice with you today as you celebrate and recognize what God has done for you. He said in his word, I see you and I'm making a simple declaration. Live live get up from where you are take my hand and I'll walk with you and I'll suck 